Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Kicking Out It Too. This week, I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and uh, this week is the return of our Trading Places concept. That's right, we are going to be uh, highlighting the month of July with not only the Trading Places concept, but the blind date diaries concept as well uh, and this trading places concept is going to entail the what I would like to consider the final nail in the coffin that was WCW the worst attempt at a worked shoot storyline in pro wrestling history and I'm referring to the bash at the beach incident from July the 9th 2000 we'll be approaching the 20th anniversary as of tomorrow um, so I thought uh, we would take the trading places format and we would we would uh we would put our own little spin, if you will, on the Bash at the Beach worked shoot, what could have been, etc., etc., um, in realistic fashion, of course. Um, but before we do all of that, before we trade places with you all, go find us on social media. Have some fun with us on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com forward slash kicking out of two, and our Twitter handle at kicking out two. Give us a like on Facebook. Give us a follow on Twitter. All kinds of great stuff over there with um, archive shows and pictures and GIFs and memes and all kinds of great stuff talking about the retro pro wrestling that I love so very much that embodies kicking out a two in this podcast. And speaking of archive shows, you can also find us a part of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network on Podbean by searching Retromania with a W. You can find all the backlog archive shows from kicking out a two as well as marking out the day's weekend warriors, Gaijin Wrestling Radio, Hulkamania is Dead, Origins of Attitude, and all kinds of great bonus content over there. Um, search Retromania with a W in any podcast platform and you will find all the great shows from that network uh you'll you'll find this on apple play you'll or apple Podcasts, excuse me google play spotify spreaker stitcher any podcast platform available by searching retromania with a w okay um you know, before we uh, before we get into the trading places scenario here, just to give you guys a brief little rundown of what exactly we're going to be trading places with, as we all know, or as some of us know, and for those of you that don't know, you're kind of getting a little bit of a wrestling history lesson. Um, from myself uh the bash at the beach 2000 incident involves hulk hogan jeff jarrett booker t vince russo and eric bischoff and this was an attempt to try to create some interest in the struggling wcw television product um in the summer of 2000 the 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 match was advertised as jeff jarrett and hulk hogan for the wcw world heavyweight championship we kind of saw that but then later in the evening, as the pay-per-view came to a close, Booker T left that pay-per-view as the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. And in between all of that, we ended up getting a Vince Russo profanity-laced tirade live on pay-per-view um, towards Hulk Hogan and leaving viewers like myself at that time at you know, 17 years old, bewildered as to what I just saw. Was this a part of the story? Is this real? Um, and what we ended up getting out of it was pretty much nothing. We got nothing out of this whole thing. Um, and allow me to kind of take us around the block a few times to get us to where, you know, get us to bash at the beach, okay? 
July the 9th, 2000, um, involving the players that I had mentioned, Booker T, Jeff Jarrett, Hulk Hogan, Vince Russo, and Eric Bischoff, and how everything pretty much started to get us to that point. So I'm going to kind of go a little bit around the block here. You're going to kind of get a history lesson, some speculation, some stories that I've heard, some theories that I've heard um, mixed with, you know, stuff from the dirt sheets. So, you know, by all means, sit back, relax, pour yourself a drink, put your feet up, and hopefully I can give you guys a wrestling history lesson on like I said, what I would like to call the worst attempt at a work-to-shoot storyline in professional wrestling history. Let's start with the state of World Championship Wrestling in 1999. The company was uh, was was lapped several times by the WWF in their programming in terms of attendance, in terms of television ratings, pay-per-view buy rates, merchandise. WWF was making money hand over fist. They were printing money, and WCW was struggling to stay afloat the i wouldn't say stay afloat they were the the you know the the wheels were coming off um for them at this time and towards the tail end of 1999 in the fall of 1999 wcw had exercised their right to um to remove eric bischoff from his from his position as the executive vice president of world championship wrestling they sent him home um and he was to sit out the remainder of his contract and in his place was uh, or who would end up taking his place would be one of the accountants for turner sports uh bill bush um who then would have to hire a um someone to take control over the wrestling operation so to speak because uh, bischoff at the time was a big part of the wcw booking committee um in the fall of 1999 from what i remember from what i remember hearing um and going back to accounts of uh of uh, old episodes of uh, the 83 weeks podcast he does with conrad and so um Russo, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara were brought in um, not too long after that, I believe in early October of 1999. They were two of the top uh, television writers for the WWF and they were a instrumental part in helping um, mold the WWF programming with that Attitude Era. Um, many have said that Russo was the guy that did it all. Uh, many have said that Russo had a hand in it and Vince was kind of the filter. Vince McMahon was kind of the filter. Um, but nonetheless, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara uh, joined World Championship Wrestling in the fall of 1999, October, I believe. Uh, their, I believe their first official night um, was uh, October the 11th or the 17th of 1999 an episode of nitro and they were just kind of contributing to what the current storylines were taking place on programming because wcw was in the midst of build-up for their halloween havoc pay-per-view they already had some big matches lined up ddp versus rick flair um bret hart versus uh, lex luger hulk hogan versus sting for the world title goldberg versus sid they had four big matchups with you know marquee names hall of famers legends uh in their own right and um so russo and ferrara i think were kind of like they they were still they were tying up some loose ends in these episodes of Nitro heading into Halloween Havoc. Um, 
you know, with these particular storylines that I mentioned while trying to implement their own ideas into the programming so that we would have something new and fresh following Halloween Havoc. So they were pretty much just executing whatever they could with the, the Halloween Havoc buildup and then kind of going into their own ideas. Um, not too long after that, Jeff Jarrett would leave the WWF um, following a pay-per-view match with China at the No Mercy pay-per-view event in October of 1999, and he would appear on an episode of WCW Monday Nitro, making his WCW debut following that. And then he would uh, end up having a small role at the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view with a little bit of a run-in with with Buff Bagwell. Um, Jarrett, at the time, um, left uh, the WWF... um, not on the best of terms. Um, apparently, he 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 wanted to. Uh, apparently, the story I heard was that he he was owed money from previous pay per views. Um, that, that 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 those funds haven't come in yet, and he he I guess he held up the company and said, "I will not um, wrestle the match with China unless I get paid for what I was owed from you know whatever the dates were." Um, and his contract had already expired, so he was th- he was there basically, you know, without it working without a deal, uh, from what I remember. Stories that he has said publicly in interviews. I believe Jim Ross has kind of confirmed some of that as well in some of his interviews. But nonetheless, um, so the so he had that little issue with WWF. He did the job. He left. China became the Intercontinental Champion. And then he would move on to WCW and he would kind of take a little bit of that backstage story that made the dirt sheets at the time and kind of incorporate it into, you know, um, his arrival into WCW, um, going to work for a place that appreciates his talent and his ability, um, being brought in by the powers that be. And that was the thing. Russo and Ferrara, um, even though they were writing the television behind the scenes, they managed to, you know, in a very tongue-in-cheek manner, uh, put themselves on television as characters, as the powers that be. And I thought it was kind of interesting the way that they had uh, presented themselves because you didn't see them on camera, okay? They were just these guys that were, you know, magically speaking behind the television camera to talents that would come in the office. If some of you, some of you older folks out there that are listening to this may remember um, the television show Seinfeld and that George Costanza character used to work for the New York Yankees. And while he was working for the New York Yankees, um, he would have interactions with the Yankees president at the time, the owner of the New York Yankees, George Steinbrenner, the late George Steinbrenner. And these interactions would be from the point of view um, of the camera. You see George Costanza in front of Steinbrenner's desk, and then you see kind of like, uh, you know, the, the, the gray hair and like a finger pointing at him, um, but you never really saw his face. Um which was done, it was brilliant the way that they had produced that and the way that they had incorporated that character into the show. So Russo and Ferrara kind of took that approach with the powers that be character. Anytime you would see the guys go into the office to, you know, make a complaint to them or to set up an angle or a match, um, you would see, like, you know, you could hear Russo's voice in the background. Um, and some fans were familiar with him from some of his, uh, his, his, uh, his cameos on the Livewire show for the WWF as Vic Venom. Um, 
And so some some people knew who he was. Um, some wrestling fans, like the diehards, the hardcores, I, I certainly knew who he was. And you would see him point his finger and, you know, with that thick New York accent, he would, you know, lay down the law with whoever he was in the office with. Um, so I thought that was, I, I thought that approach was kind of cool. And it was a little bit different with WCW's programming, but I thought I enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of funny, especially when he would, you know, tell him, he's like, you're going to go out there, you're going to wrestle that match, and you're going to do it, otherwise you're fired. And he, you know, he had, like I said, that thick New York accent. You could see his finger in the camera. He's pointing at the guy and he's laying down the law. I just thought that stuff was kind of cool. Um, so, you know, they're in full swing um, as a company um, or as, as, as a duo on television. They're run together. And one of their first big acts on television that kind of got people to turn their heads a little bit was at the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view, the advertised championship match between Sting and Hogan never really took place. Um, you know, Sting was the, Sting was the heel at the time. And he was the he was the champion. He had defeated Hogan at the Fall Brawl pay per view a month prior, and so the build up towards that match was you know Sting kind of just getting the best of Hogan and really trying to embrace this new role as this villain. Um, and so uh, you know comes time for the match, and Sting comes out and he's um, you know he's 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 ready to go, and then they play Hogan's music, and he's nowhere to be found. And then they play Hogan's music again, and he's nowhere to be found. And the announcers on television, kind of in a very, you know, loose way, kind of, you know, elaborated on the narrative that, that many wrestling fans that, you know, read the dirt sheets would know uh, of Hogan's WCW political stroke, his backstage politics, if you will, is Hogan, did, did, did Hogan not want to come out, you know, uh, first, did he need to come out last, is he making Sting wait, what's he doing, is he pulling his, 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 his creative control card, and lo and behold, Hogan shows up, and he's in, you know, uh, um, jeans, and, uh, uh, you know, boots and he's um, you know in like a cutoff shirt and he's not in his normal red and yellow attire and the audience doesn't really know what to make of it the announcers really aren't sure what's going on but he gets in the ring and he starts talking with sting he says something to sting the bell rings and then hogan lies down and 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 everyone's bewildered myself included i remember watching this on pay-per-view i was like what the heck is going on and sting covers him reluctantly he wasn't really thrilled about it and you know one two three sting is the winner and hogan just gets up and walks off and then they cut to like a video package of like the next match like previewing the next match and i thought oh this is weird i was like this has got to be some way that the, like they're 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 writing him off and they're gonna bring him back and you know at the time on the dirt sheets there were a lot of rumors that you know when Russo especially Russo when he came in to control um, and empower at WCW that he wanted to phase out the 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 guys that were like you know 40 and older the the the, the established names like Hogan like Ric Flair like. Roddy Piper, like a Randy Savage. I believe Randy Savage's contract was was nearing its end at that point. Um, you know, all the all the 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 older established talents he was looking to phase out, um, with the exception of a few guys like a Sting, 
like a you know a, a, a Hall and Nash. Um, he he was looking to take some of the older guys that had dominated the 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 top of the card in WCW and phase them out. And, it, and ironically enough, on that same pay per view, he wrote Ric Flair off of television too, and Flair would end up getting attacked by the Filthy Animals faction of Conan. Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio, and Billy Kidman, and then taken out into the middle of the desert in Las Vegas and just left for dead. Um, which there was really no explanation behind that either. But nonetheless, um, you know, the, the, by that point, um, after watching, you know, Hogan lay down and hearing all these rumors and everything kind of building up from what I remember, I thought to myself, well, this has got to be a way that they're 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 taking Hogan off the of TV for a while, and you know they're kind of playing into the the rumors that have been reported of Hogan and Russo having issues with each other because there were reports and rumors, I should say. I'm not even going to call them really reports, but there was speculation online um, and 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 some of the dirt sheets and the 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 Meltzer rags or the the pro wrestling torches or whatever that Hogan and Russo had some issues and that there was a that, that there was going to be, um, if they were to try and coexist, it wasn't going to end well. It, was, it wasn't going to be pretty, and someone was going to, someone was going to be out of WCW. So um, there was a lot of that going around. So with all that being said, to me at that time, I just chalked it up as Hogan's going to come back. It's going to have, it's going to be involving something with him and Russo. This is the reason why I kind of lied down. They're going to really try and play the real life backstage elements into WCW um, to kind of make their program exciting or to try and gauge interest in the audience. And, you know, at that time in 1999, I thought to myself, you know, at 16 years old, I was like, it's actually not a bad idea, you know, kind of, you know, add some as a sense of realism to you know whether it's true or not like it just makes it intriguing it makes it more interesting it's different it's 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 not the status quo you know nwo storyline that we had been seeing for you know two and a half years so i thought to myself okay that's that it's got some interest there um and i, I was kind of like holding out hope for wcw in that sense so nonetheless after that pay-per-view like things were really in full swing for for vince russo and ed ferrara as the head writers of wcw programming um you know throughout the course of the month of november and and it was all about the crowning of the wcw world title tournament on television um so nitro and thunder were dominated by you know a 32-man tournament and russo to his credit okay and russo gets a bad rap um for the negative contributions he had made um to uh professional wrestling but you know to his credit he did what he could possibly anything he possibly could to utilize the talent that he had under contract um just about everybody was in that tournament you know from top of the card all the way down to the bottom you know and he tried to give storylines to to guys that weren't really featured as much and some focus on them um and I remember as a kid at the time, I, you know, I, I channel surfed, I flipped back and forth. Raw was the better program than Nitro. But when I was watching Nitro, I was like, okay, this is different. It wasn't great in hindsight, but I was like, all right, they're trying some new stuff. And they're throwing mud at the wall to see what sticks. And so I, I, I was, I never wanted WCW shut down in the first place, but um, I wanted them to, to, to put up a good fight and i thought with russo being one of the important figures in helping build wwf's programming in the attitude era 
that he was going to be very helpful in putting WCW back in the race. So um, eventually, the end of 1999 would culminate with Vince Russo um, on television. Well, he he wouldn't appear as a character on television, but um, Vince Russo behind the scenes would reform or rebrand the NWO. The scene was set. It was Starcade 1999, and you had Bret Hart and Goldberg for the WCW World Heavyweight Title, and he took he took two big important moments in wrestling history, and he tried to merge them together. He the the finish of the match came when um, Bret Hart had Goldberg in the Sharpshooter, and Rowdy Roddy Piper made his way down the ring with a referee shirt on. And at the time, Piper on television was having some issues with the powers that be. They were trying to get him to fulfill his big contract that the company was paying, and they were having him do all sorts of stuff, be a referee, wrestle in a mud wrestling match. They were humiliating Roddy Piper on a weekly basis on television. And in order for Piper to keep his job, Piper had to go out and be the the official for that match and make the call. And Piper, they ended up reenacting the Montreal screw job. And they tried to play it off like Brett didn't know. And then eventually the next night, it would appear that Brett was in on it all along with the powers that be. And the NWO was reformed with Bret Hart, Jeff Jarrett, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash. Eventually, Scott Steiner would join the mix. Um, and it was like this elite, the NWO silver and black. And they were like the NWO elite or NWO 2000 or whatever they referred to themselves as. Um and for a brief period of time, um, you know, even though the NWO story was played out, it wasn't like the NWOs of the of the past where you had 25, 30 guys in the NWO. You had five or six guys that were, you know, looked at as legitimate stars, incredible performers to be in that group. So, you know, I remember saying to myself, okay, like this NWO, like with, with the powers that be backing them up and they're kind of running the show, like I can get behind this, you know, got going up against guys like Goldberg and then Chris Benoit, Sid, um, maybe Sting will get into it with them, you know, and then like my wheels were turning as a kid and I was like, oh, Hogan, this could be a perfect opportunity for Hogan to come back, fight off the NWO and and the powers that be that run the NWO. And that maybe how's that going to play into when Hogan laid down for Sting at Halloween Havoc? And as a kid, my, my, my creative juices were flowing at the time. So nonetheless, they ended the year um, 1999 going into the year 2000 with the NWO as a focal point of WCW programming. Now, in hindsight, it, it probably wasn't the greatest idea. But I can understand maybe Russo trying to put his own little twist onto a very successful storyline such as the NWO. And we go into 2000, um, early 2000, and they had built the the sold-out pay-per-view event around the NWO's involvement. Um, Terry Funk was brought into WCW as the commissioner, um, and he was brought in to kind of, you know... um, lay down the law with the NWO and with the powers that be. Um, And they were building towards a Terry Funk, Kevin Nash, hardcore match to determine the control of WCW. Will the NWO control WCW or will Terry Funk end up, you know, and and I believe if Funk 
if Funk's if Funk won the match, then the NWO would have to break up. I think that was the stipulation. Um, then capitalizing off of the the tremendous ladder match that Jeff Jarrett had with Chris Benoit Starcade, they were doing a like three um, best of three matches in one night um, on the pay per view. It was supposed to be like. Um, I believe they called it a dungeon match or, uh, you know, where it was like dungeon style rules based off of Benoit's affiliation with the Hart family and training in the dungeon. Uh, the other match, I believe, on that card was a ladder match. And then what their version of Hell in the Cell, they called it caged heat or maybe it was a bunkhouse match. I could be mistaken. I think a bunkhouse match, then a cage heat match. And then that pay-per-view was also scheduled to be headlined with Bret Hart defending the WCW World Heavyweight title against Sid Vicious. Now, originally he was scheduled to face Goldberg in a rematch, but Goldberg um, on an episode of Thunder trying to go after the NWO, chased the NWO down and... Goldberg ended up slamming his fist into the window of a limousine and uh, tearing some tendons in his arm, and therefore he was unable to compete. Sid was put in his place. Now, before the pay-per-view rolls around, they had to make some changes because Bret Hart, who had suffered a concussion at Starcade, his condition was getting worse. He was still performing on television following that Starcade. He had a hardcore match with Terry Funk. He had a very physical match with Kevin Nash. Um, and his condition was worsening. And Jeff Jarrett also suffered a concussion as well. And so, therefore, Jeff Jarrett had to pull out of his match sold out. So, they had to make some changes. And according to the rumors, according to the urban legend... Um, Vince Russo um, opted to shake things up a bit and he wanted to do a battle royal at that pay-per-view to determine who the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion would be and he wanted Tank Abbott to win that title. Tank Abbott, former mixed martial artist in the UFC, he had some notoriety to him coming from that world of, of MMA. Um, MMA at that time was in the early stages of gaining popularity so I think, he, I think Russo was trying to get that attention from the MMA audience that Tank Abbott was there was the wrestling world champion um, and so allegedly according to the rumor that idea was thrown out and WCW management um, then decided that they that they weren't going to allow Russo and Ferrara to have full control of the booking and the storylines and they wanted to implement a booking team and that booking team was going to consist of vince russo jj dillon kevin sullivan i believe terry taylor was a part of it ed ferrara and maybe a couple other guys i could i could be leaving some names out and russo had said sorry you paid me to come here and try to help fix your show and write your stories and i'm you know you paid for me I'm not working with eight, nine other people. You know, it's me and Ed. And Russo decided, you know what? I don't want to do it. And him and the company agreed that he was going to he was going to sit at home. He was going to sit out the remainder of his contract. So WCW was in a state of flux and they were trying to figure out and scramble their 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 plans for that pay-per-view so they had um they had decided that Chris Benoit was going to wrestle Sid Vicious for the vacant WCW World Heavyweight Championship. And as we get to sold out, um, 
Benoit and Sid would have a pretty damn good match. Arn Anderson was the guest referee, which he was originally scheduled to be the guest referee for the title match had it involved Brett and Sid because Arn was involved in that storyline with the NWO briefly as like an ally to Terry Funk. He was a part of like the championship committee, I guess you could say. And so... Um, we get the match, and apparently Urban Legend, before the match, um, after finding out that Sullivan, Kevin Sullivan was going to be head booker again, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Conan, Rey Mysterio, Shane Douglas, Perry Saturn, Dean Malenko, uh, maybe a few other guys, um, had all gone to WCW management, um, and the t- at the time, the, the acting president, Bill Bush, and said to Bill Bush, you know, we don't trust Kevin Sullivan with our careers. It's either him or us. And um, apparently, and this is a story I heard on a, on a shoot interview with Mike Graham. Mike Graham, I guess, went to Benoit in private and said to Benoit, you know, I can't believe that you're going to try and get Kevin fired um, after what Kevin's doing for you. He wants to put the belt on you, um, you know. Honestly, if I were Kevin, he goes, and and you took my wife, you took my condo in Daytona Beach, um, and you try to get me fired, I would chop your, I would cut your fucking head off and put it on a stick in the front yard so that all the kids could kick it around like a soccer ball. And apparently, now this is according to Mike Graham. Mike Graham, I've heard, I've heard in other interviews with other people that Mike Graham had a tendency to um, embellish. And I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but that was his reputation. And so apparently those comments made it back to the other members of the um, the contingent that went to Bill Bush. And Bill Bush... Um, or, and so it, it, made, it made the rounds that, you know, he, he, he said this to Benoit. And apparently Benoit and these other guys went to Human Resources within Turner Sports and said this guy had threatened me and et cetera, et cetera. Um, they went on with the match. Benoit wrestled Sid. And because of all of those issues taking place before the pay-per-view, um, they booked a finish where Benoit would defeat Sid, but Sid would have his foot under the bottom rope. So in the event that Benoit and the rest of those guys were no longer a part of the company, they had a storyline explanation as to why Benoit wouldn't be the champion. So Benoit wins. But then he shows up to that night at Nitro the next night, and and Bill Bush says, okay, I'm going to let you guys go. And he cut them loose, and he handed the WCW title back to management. And Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Perry Saturn, and Dean Malenko were all allowed, were all given their releases and were basically headed to the WWF. Now, as far as um, Kidman and Rey Mysterio, I think they were, they ended up... Uh, being convinced to stay, management promised them that they would be utilized better and put in more prominent roles. Um, Conan and Shane Douglas, I believe the story I heard on the Something to Wrestle With podcast when they covered the Radicals uh, debut in the WWF was that um, Shane Douglas thought he was a part of that package. And for whatever reason, there was some sort of disconnect between him and the other guy, the other four, uh, Malenko, Benoit, Saturn, and and uh, Guerrero, he wasn't a part of that. And so then eventually I believe he was fired from WCW. And I believe Conan uh, would end up getting suspended 
from WCW. And so him and Ray would both get suspended because of them threatening to walk out in the company or something to that effect. And they would have to serve a suspension. So that right there was like the results of Russo leaving or Russo walking away from the booking committee that was proposed to him by other members of management in WCW. So the company they're they're now this new era is in full swing they've gone through so many management changes in the last six seven months it was crazy um kevin sullivan and jj Dillon, i believe and terry taylor were a big part of the booking of this time um so we saw a lot of um we saw a lot of Hogan. Hogan returned eventually. Flair returned. No explanation as to why Hogan left. No explanation as to why Flair was buried out in the desert. It was a new era. They had wiped the slate clean. The, 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 the top of the card was dominated with Hogan and Flair and Sting and Luger. Um, Jeff Jarrett was still kind of in the mix for the WCW title. He was wrestling Sid. Um... They had broken up the NWO. I believe Kevin Nash broke his foot. Scott Hall had some personal issues. Scott Steiner still couldn't get cleared to wrestle. Then he would eventually get suspended for, for that shoot promo he did on Nitro when he said that Ric Flair had yellow crooked teeth and, you know, referenced Steve Austin and the WWF in the promo. And so there was all this chaos going on. And the television ratings were dipping. Nobody was watching Nitro. Nobody was watching Thunder. I was having a hard time watching any of those shows. I was pretty much glued to the WWF and the Attitude Era um, in the in that time in 2000. People weren't going to the shows. The the attendance was dropping. Pay per view buy rates, you know, were dropping. It was just a bad scene all around. And eventually. Um, they would have no choice but to but to try and make some changes and one of those changes was and according to eric bischoff he had gotten a call um on super bowl sunday that year from brad siegel who was working as a as a top ranking executive for turner sports but also working with wcw and he had even he he recalled this this incident in an episode of 83 Weeks where he had, he had said that him and his wife were at an Applebee's and they were watching um, they were watching the Super Bowl. They, they had taken a trip and um, they just went out to get a quick bite to eat somewhere and they were at an Applebee's and um, I believe it was in Chicago, Chicago area. Uh, and he said, and, and apparently there was something that came on the TV. WCW was on the TV. And he said something to the effect of, don't be surprised if I get a call from them. And literally, I think he was either after dinner or at the dinner or after dinner when they got back to where they were staying. Brad Siegel kind of called him just to kind of feel him out and see where he was at. And Bischoff knew right then and there, according to him, that this was all about bringing him back. Um, now, they weren't going to bring him back as an executive to run the company. Um, they even mentioned to him in that early conversation about possibly purchasing the company. Would he be able to get some investors together to purchase the company? Um, because Brad Siegel knew that Eric was the only one that had a true vision for WCW, and he was the only one that made it successful, and so he was he was their option. Um, and then that conversation, I believe, shifted you know, to a phone call later 
that uh, you know with Brad Siegel and Bischoff talking about you know would you work with Vince Russo and apparently a meeting was set up and they got along great and they made an agreement and Bischoff was coming in at a creative as from a creative role only he was not coming in to run the company per se um, that was still a Bill Bush Brad Siegel I believe Bill Bush was gone by then I should say I think they fired Bill Bush or they had demoted him and moved him to another part of uh, the, the the Turner conglomerate and Brad Siegel was kind of the one in charge and so Bischoff, uh, Bischoff agrees to work with Russo, and lo and behold, they make their debut together, not only um, behind the scenes writing the television programming, but um, on camera too as allies, a part of this New Blood Millionaires Club storyline. Um, now, let me just backtrack a little bit here. Okay, because I kind of forgot to mention this as I was going off on my normal tangent. So like I say, sometimes I, I go around the block a few times and this time we're definitely going around the block multiple times uh, to get us to where we need to get to uh, with, the, with the trading places scenario. Um, Booker T um, during this time period, um, from when Russo came on board to when Russo was demoted to after Russo had left and to when Russo came back, his character had taken some dips, okay? He was a tag team in Harlem Heat with his brother Stevie Ray. They were enjoying some success together. Um, Booker, eventually the idea was brought up of splitting up the Harlem Heat. And Booker and Stevie had a series of matches with each other. And eventually it got to the point where they they fought over the intellectual property of the Harlem Heat name, that Booker T was making money off of something that he didn't create. So him and Stevie Ray had a match, and Stevie Ray won with help from Ahmed Johnson, returning to pro wrestling. Ahmed Johnson would eventually um, rename himself as Big T. He was the, and it was Harlem Heat 2000. Um, Clarence Mason, the, the the lawyer for Jim Cornette on WWF programming, was brought into WCW as Jay Biggs. He was the lawyer and the rep the, the, the the mouthpiece for Harlem Heat 2000. And it got to the point where Booker T was not even legally allowed to use the Harlem Heat theme music. He was not even allowed to call himself Booker T. He would just be only referenced as Booker. It had gotten so bad that, like, Booker T's... The perception of him for me as a kid at that time was, wow, what the hell are they doing to him? Like, this is terrible. Like, I honestly thought that time that as talented as he was in the ring, and he was, he was fucking talented, one of, the, one of my favorites to watch, um, it was just a burial, I felt like. They were just stripping everything away from him, and he had nothing left. So... I, I thought this was a really bad period in Booker T's career at that time. Um, I don't know what he thinks of it, but to me as a fan, I just didn't like what they did with him. I didn't. I, I, I didn't think it made sense. I thought it was silly. I thought it was stupid. Um, and then I just didn't like it at all. So now we get to Russo and Bischoff working together. Um, big part of the, the millionaire's club new blood storyline um it was april the 10th 2000 on an episode of wcw monday nitro which by the way uh last year uh my brother daryl and i 
we took part in a watch along of that episode of Nitro. Um, it's in the archives. You can find it. Nitro Watch Party from April the 10th, 2000. We watched that from beginning to end on WWE Network. And that was like the night where Russo and Bischoff were going to give WCW this fresh start. Not only behind the scenes, but in front of the camera. And in the weeks leading up to it, there was a lot of speculation on television that, you know, they announced it on, t on a Nitro that Russo and Bischoff are coming back to WCW and they're going to work together, you know, to, 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 to take over. Um, and there was a lot of speculation that these two weren't going to be able to get along and there was, there was egos involved. And so that was the big, that was the big hook to try and get people to tune into that Nitro was, you know, can Bischoff and Russo coexist in WCW? Um, and the, the, the show began with a, a lot of the undercard wrestlers and mid-card performers um, in the WCW locker room, um, it, surrounding the ring, inside the ring um, with Vince Russo. And Vince Russo talking about um, how there's going to be this big change in WCW and you're not going to see the old guys taking over. And he had called out Hogan and Flair a few times. And um, then Eric Bischoff made his way out. And everyone expected Bischoff to represent that old guard of all those established stars um, opposing Vince Russo in this new blood. And they ended up shaking hands and and uh, they weren't kissing babies, but they were, they were certainly enjoying each other's company. At least that's how they made appear to me as a viewer on TV um, and the Alliance was born they were going to be in control of WCW and they tried their hardest at times to really take some of the younger guys who had some potential and pair them up with some of the older established guys to give them a rub so they you know on that Nitro, they had developed storylines for Ric Flair with Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas returned to WCW, and Shane Douglas and Ric Flair had a, um, a highly publicized verbal rivalry with each other behind the scenes that had been public to the to the internet wrestling community douglas just hated flair he thought flair held him down for years in wcw and he had made it public and they incorporated that into the programming um apparently there was a line on an episode of wcw thunder uh, hulk hogan said that billy kidman couldn't draw um draw money at a flea market He's a flea market wrestling champion. Um, and that comment was brought up and they had incorporated Bischoff into that and Kidman and Hogan was born. Sting and Vampiro. Um, you know what I mean? Like they had these rivalries for all these established guys. They were trying to, you know, have them give these younger guys the rub. And in theory, I respect that. But in hindsight, looking back on it, it wasn't the right call. Um, nobody believed that Billy Kidman, who was a foot and a half shorter than Hulk Hogan, no disrespect to Billy Kidman, talented performer, but he was a foot and a half shorter than Hulk Hogan. They didn't, nobody believed that Billy Kidman could beat Hulk Hogan. Nobody. Hogan dwarfed him. It was, it was sometimes, it was really hard to watch. Um, so I get the reason why they tried to, to, to do it. They wanted to make stars you know jeff jarrett would eventually become the world champion he had traded the belt with diamond dallas page a few times they had the they had the angle with david arquette where david arquette who was a friend of diamond dallas page they were hyping up that ready to rumble movie that wcw performers took part in and david arquette ended up winning the wcw world heavyweight championship which many look at as you know 
another nail in the coffin for WCW. It got a lot of notoriety. It wasn't, you know, they say they say no press is bad press. Well, it was bad press, but people, it, it, it made the cover of USA Today. It wasn't like, the. It, I don't know. I'm not defending it because I didn't agree with it myself, but they were trying. You know, they, they were trying and they were trying to capitalize on the movie that was coming out and... You know the WCW's association with that. So, in theory, I understand why they went that route, but I don't agree with it. But nonetheless, during this time period, you know Hogan, Hogan's working with Kidman, and um, you know Jarrett's having his run with DDP and David Arquette. They had the match at Slamboree with the cage, the the triple ready to rumble cage, and you know, I, I, you know, Jarrett would wrestle Kevin Nash, and he would wrestle. Fl Jarrett had bounced the title back and forth, I think, on like three or four kitchens, like in a two-month span. Like I think Jarrett was like a four-time WCW champion in like two months, with like losing to DDP, losing to Flair, losing to Nash, beating those guys, getting the belt back. So Jarrett was a heavy focal point of WCW programming, backed by Russo, not just on camera, but behind the scenes as well. Now, um, while this is all going on, um, you know, according to um, uh, a number of shoot interviews I've seen with Bischoff, some of his episodes of 83 Weeks, and even some shoot interviews with Russo, these two were buttonheads left and right. Um, you know, Bischoff was trying to do what was right, and uh, Russo... Russo, I guess, according to Bischoff, was just making it difficult. And according to Russo, um, Bischoff wasn't really coming up with fresh ideas, and he was kind of he he was he was shooting down everything that Russo was trying to do um, throughout this process. But they managed to put out the product that they put out, um, and it was another case. And WCW was famous for that, where the right didn't wasn't telling the left what was going on so we saw a lot of inconsistencies in the programming um and and according to both russo and bischoff respectively on each end they were trying to fix that so they didn't so that perception wasn't there anymore but nonetheless um you know we saw what we saw when it came to that new blood millionaires club storyline um and while this was all going on as well Booker T's descent from a character was continuing rapidly um, into, you know, the, the depths of hell, I guess you could say, because then he went from not being allowed to call himself Booker T to being Booker to then eventually being G.I. Bro. And that, to me, was just like the ultimate insult. I was like, this is just, this is ridiculous. What did this guy do? Who did he piss off? Did he, you know, it was just... It, back then you know seven you know 20 years ago i was just like 17 i was like my goodness i'm like this guy is talented like he should be a part of the future of wcw working with the guys like sting working with the scott steiners working with the goldbergs working with the kevin nashes even working with the hulk hogan's you know um he's got that you know he's that talented I, so i was just kind of like baffled that you know throughout all this booker t was becoming a joke from a character standpoint um, G.I. Bro? For real? I mean, I know that that's a, 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 a character he portrayed on an independent level and in the territory system, I believe, for global wrestling um, back in the, the late 80s, early 90s. But come on. It was just... 
It was it was way too silly. Um, but that was WCW for you. Um, they tried anything and to see if it worked and if it stuck. And they were the the kind of company that felt like you know. Um, if there's no reaction to it, then it's terrible. But if there's a bad reaction to it, then we're getting a reaction. So let's just keep going with it. So um, let's let's we're almost done here. We're almost we're almost making our way around the block again to eventually get us to the trading places scenario with Hulk Hogan and Jeff Jarrett from Bash at the Beach. Um, not too long before that pay-per-view, um, Hulk Hogan would end up defeating Billy Kidman at the Great American Bash pay-per-view to earn himself a shot at the WCW title at this Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. On that same pay-per-view, um, Jeff Jarrett would regain the WCW World Heavyweight title from Kevin Nash with help from Goldberg. That was when they did the infamous Goldberg heel turn and he joined the New Blood, um, which... People, I, I talked about it on a recent episode of of this podcast with Dennis. Um, I was in favor of the Goldberg heel turn because there were certain elements that just made sense. But he's another one of those guys that, like, he believes in his character so much that, like, he couldn't believe that he was a bad guy, um, and, and it was it was hard for him to portray that role. So, um, you know that that Goldberg would join the New Blood. He would help Jarrett. Regain the title, and the match is set. Hogan, Jarrett, Bash at the Beach. Now, um, during this time period in this New Blood Millionaires Club storyline, Hulk Hogan wasn't the red and yellow Hulk Hogan. He wasn't the Hollywood Hogan. He was like Terry Bollea. He was like the real-life Terry Bollea um, with the Hulk Hogan name slapped on. He came out wearing his street clothes, and um, Hulk Hogan kind of added a little edge to his character. He was cussing on TV. Um and uh you know ultra violent um in, in in some of these matches that he was having with billy kidman and so in in this instance with Jarrett, he kind of brought that kind of i guess that led to the morphing of hollywood hogan again he had to get you know a lot of bad stuff had to happen to him in order for him to get to this point to be Hollywood Hogan. So um, I remember on one of the earlier episodes of Nitro, he had wrestled Jarrett, um, or he had wrestled Goldberg, excuse me. And Goldberg was kind of doing the dirty work for Jarrett, and he, Goldberg gave him a jackhammer through a table, and we didn't see Hogan on TV for weeks. And for weeks, Jarrett would, um, would, would, would mock Hogan, come out with the yellow shirt, and um, talking about how he's going to end Hogan's career, and you know if Hogan even makes it to Bash at the Beach. And then the announcers on television, I believe in the last like week or so before Bash at the Beach, were kind of speculating if Hogan was going to even show up. And they kind of alluded to the narrative that Hogan plays politics behind the scenes. And, you know, is Hogan going to show up? You know, does he have creative control? Uh, you know, is he going to get his? Is he going? You know, is he going to show up for his big pay-per-view payday, et cetera, et cetera? Um, you know, you know what? What's he going to do with Jeff Jarrett? And uh, that was a little bit of that blurring of the lines that, uh, in hindsight, probably wasn't the best approach for their storyline. But nonetheless, they um, they went with it and. Um, you know, now we have the match. Now we have the moment where, um, you know, we get to Hogan and Jeff Jarrett. I, I fondly, fondly remember this evening. Okay. Um, I was a junior. I was, I was 
going to be a senior in high school. It was the summer of my junior year, uh, and I was working for um, a local catering company in the area that um, that would that would provide meals at the uh, the the music the music amphitheater. And that was my summer job, and I worked in the kitchen, and we would cook for the rock stars. We'd cook backstage. We cooked, you know, for I, I can I can do a whole podcast on all the stories I have for everything I did in the, in the food business when it came to working, you know, the the behind the scenes catering aspect. I even did some wrestling shows, which was kind of cool. Maybe I'll talk about that at a later date. Um, actually, did a WCW Nitro once, which was pretty cool. But um, I remember this night vividly. Uh, it was Journey and Foreigner at the what is now known as the Xfinity um, Amphitheater uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. But it was once called the Meadows Music Theater. I always call it the Meadows. I still will to this day. And so they were the headliner, Journey and Foreigner. I was 17 years old. Um, obviously, I, Journey was well before my time. Same thing with Foreigner. But um, a couple of the older guys that were in the kitchen had said, oh, you know, just check it out you know and I, i'm a big rock and roll guy so i was like yeah why not you know i'll check it out um and i had a blast man it was a lot of fun i had a great time that night you know with my co-workers watching the show journey kicked ass i was i was really loving it and i had so much fun that um i remember like towards the end of the night the show's over. They were letting people out. I didn't have my driver's license at the time, so I had them, one of my parents come pick me up. And I remember, um, I remember as I was waiting for my my father or my mother to come pick me up. I was like, "Oh shit, that WCW pay per view's on tonight." Oh my god! I was like, "Oh shit!" Like I gotta get home. And it was like already passed when the pay per view started, but at that time. Um, the cable company that my parents used to subscribe to when wrestling had a pay-per-view on you would you you would order the 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 pay-per-view on your on, with your remote control and you would get the live airing and you would get the replay immediately following so when i got home I had a TV in my room, I had a cable box in my room. I was big time at 17 years old. If I had a TV and a cable box and capabilities to order pay-per-view and, and, and all that stuff, like I, that was big for me um, at 17 years old because I grew up in a house with three younger brothers and I had to share bedrooms for a number of years. And so finally I had my own bedroom and I had a TV and cable and I go to turn on the TV and I go to the pay-per-view channel and I click and I order it and just as... I, it turns on and it confirms my order. Jeff Jarrett's making his way out. I shit you not. Okay. Jeff Jarrett's making his way out. And as the as Jarrett's making his way out, the announcers are talking about Hogan stalling. And Hogan is Hogan gonna show up? Is he gonna do is he is he gonna do his job? Is he you know, is he is he gonna is he gonna be here? Is he gonna compete against Jeff Jarrett? And they like I said, that narrative of you know, the creative control. They were kind of throwing that out there. Um, and Hogan hadn't been on, been on TV in weeks. And there was some reasons behind that, which I'll get into in a little bit. But, um, you know, the, eventually the the old NWO music would hit and uh, Hogan would, would show up. And we would get Hogan come down to the ring. He would do his, you know, signature tearing of the shirt. He would pose, um, and 
as he was doing all this, or should I say before he did this, before he even came out, Russo had come out. And Jarrett's, apparently Jarrett's entrance was a little delayed and Russo came out before Jarrett on his own and then Jarrett came out after and then Hogan would come out. So Russo was already at ringside. So like I said, I come home late, flip it on, order it, and you know, we're, you know, Jarrett's coming out and I was a little baffled as to why Russo was out there because he didn't really have any um, issue with Hogan at this point on television. He did, but he didn't. Bischoff was basically the the figurehead that was opposing Hogan at the time, part of this New Blood Millionaires Club storyline. So the bell rings, and immediately Jeff Jarrett lies down, and Ho and, and the announcers are shocked. No one knows what to make of it. Hogan looks at Jarrett. Um, he's you know kind of talking to Jarrett like, "What are you doing?" And Russo. Um, Russo kind of backs away from the ring and he's 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 kind of walking up the or no he's 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 circling the ring and he throws the WCW title into the ring and tells Hogan here take it and to me now at this point I'm thinking this is definitely a part of a story okay like this is part of the story like the, the, they're not going to do this again and try to get me to think that this isn't real you know that this is real like like halloween havoc when hogan lied down which they referenced in the commentary and hogan puts his hogan grabs the microphone and russo's walking off and hogan says is this your deal russo that's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this he drops the mic puts his foot on Jarrett. referee makes the count one, two, three. Hogan is awarded the WCW title. Jarrett walks off. Hogan's even trying to get Jarrett's attention as he's walking off. Like, what the hell's going on? So, to me, at this point, I'm like, this is a classic case of they're trying to make us believe that this is a shoot. Um, but it was intriguing at the time. At that time. I didn't know what was going on. So, I was like, okay, this is intriguing. Like, maybe this is going to, maybe this is going to explain why Hogan laid down at Bash at the Beach or at Halloween Havoc in, in, in the fall of 1999, like I had spoken of earlier. And so we see Hogan going up the ramp. He's got the belt. He takes the belt, and he throws it through the curtain. And then we cut to a shot of Hogan and his son walking backstage. Um, and then not long after that, the announcers just sit there and they speculate and they're like, what the hell did we just see? What is going on? This is crazy. You know, they, they, a lot of television insider terms and Shivani was like, this was not on the format. And um, there was a lot of confusion. And I just remember watching it back and I was like, I, 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 and it was still early in the evening too. Like there were still a few more matches from what I remember advertised on the card that needed to take out, needed to be played out. So I thought to myself like, well, this ain't over yet. There's more to this than meets the eye. And so, according to the rumor mill, when it came time for Bash at the Beach and to decide the finish of that particular match, there was a lot of back and forth on both sides. Bischoff and Hogan kind of lobbying, obviously, for Hogan to win. Russo and Jarrett, obviously, lobbying for Jarrett to keep the title. Um... And so, apparently, on the day of this show, John Laurinaitis, who we would all know as, uh, you know, uh, a television character on WWE programming. He was also a big part of talent relations behind the scenes for WWE. 
following the sale of WCW. Um, he was working for WCW at the time, and he had met with Hogan and told him that Russo wanted him to lose the t- lose to Jarrett um, at that pay-per-view, and then after that, he didn't really have anything for him um, on television. So uh, Russo apparently wasn't going to, you know, write anything for Hogan following this, and Hogan didn't like it one bit. Uh, apparently, he went to Bischoff, and they approached Russo, and they came up with the idea that worked much better for them. Their plan was to have him win the title and leave the company with the belt and then have Russo set up a tournament to crown a new champion, and then Hogan would later return at Halloween Havoc or another pay-per-view, major pay-per-view, to claim that he's the real champion. Um, This scenario was obviously more appealing to Hogan um, because it allowed him to leave with the belt and come back strong at a later date. Uh, But Russo really wasn't having any of this um, at all. Um, But Hulk Hogan... This is where that whole Hulk Hogan creative control narrative comes into play. Um, and apparently, you know, there were there's a lot of different shoot interviews and different transcripts of things that I've read regarding this. Russo says that he made Hogan believe in their in, in their meeting backstage at that pay-per-view that he was going along with everything Hogan said. Um Hogan says that Russo via Hogan and Bischoff have both said that Russo, you know, fought it till the very end, um, but then eventually agreed to the sti- to the situation. Maybe that's what Russo was referring to when he said he made Hogan believe and and he went along with it. Um, so obviously, when it came time for the match, Jarrett came down and uh, he just laid down. Um, Russo was at ringside. He threw the belt at Hogan, told him to go ahead and take it. Hogan looked baffled. He got on the mic, just like I said earlier, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's been debated, you know, whether the announcers were in on this or if they knew um, that it was going to go down this way. Um, both Hogan and Bischoff said everything up until the point of. You know, up up until that point was planned. Everyone agreed to it, all parties involved. And apparently um, it was agreed to so much so that when Russo and Bischoff went to Brad Siegel, they went to Brad Siegel, who was their boss at the time, and they came up with each solution. And Brad Siegel said, we're going to go with Eric's solution. We're going to go with Eric's idea of Hogan winning instead of Jarrett winning. Um, that's according to Eric Bischoff. And apparently... Um, Part of Bischoff's deal, I think he mentioned this on his podcast, was that um, anything that he did with Russo, um, when it came time to, like, if there was a disagreement on something creatively, anything that the two of them did, if they couldn't come up with something, Brad Siegel was, like, the tiebreaker. I, I heard somewhere that Bischoff had asked this to be put into their contract, um, into his contract, but... Um, So apparently they leave, they get in the jet, they go back to Tampa, they leave Daytona Beach, and Bischoff says he gets off the plane and his phone, his cell phone is blowing up uh, from people saying, you know, did you see what Russo just did? And, you know, they're, Bischoff and Hogan are like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. We just got off the plane, we just left the building. You know, it was like a 45 minute flight from Daytona Beach to Tampa on a private jet. And they had no idea. And apparently they went back to Hulk's house. They turned on the TV. The, the paper was already ordered, apparently. And they watched it. And that was when um, Russo lit off this. Um, 
you know, profanity laced tirade talking about Hulk Hogan being a piece of shit. And, um, you'll never see that piece of shit again. And, um, he, he, he talked about, you know, Hogan and the, the old guard laying, you know, the, the laying a shitty foundation for the future of WCW and the guys like the Booker T's and the Scott Steiners and the Jeff Jarrett's of the, of, of the company deserve to be on top. And Hulk Hogan wants to play his creative control card, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then he said the match wasn't official, that Jarrett was still the world champion, and then he would, in fact, have a match later in the evening against Booker T. Now, Booker T wrestled earlier on that pay-per-view against Canyon. Um, Booker, T was, Booker T and Canyon had a rivalry going after Canyon turned on Diamond Dallas Page at the previous pay-per-view, and Booker T was defending his friend DDP. And that was when they allowed Booker T, Booker T to be Booker T again. Um and so, on top of completely burying Hogan and shitting all over his name, Russo promised fans that they would never see him in WCW ever again. And that's exactly what happened. That was his final appearance with the company. Um, and he would later, this is silly, but he would later sue Vince Russo for defamation of character for the promo he cut on him, claiming it greatly damaged his career. Um, but the, the lawsuit would eventually get tossed out. So, all right. I've given you everything regarding everyone all the players, Russo, Hogan, Jarrett, Bischoff, Booker T. Everything that led us up to that point. Now, this is where we go trade places. This is the trading places scenario, if you will. Okay? Let's say, let's say we go with the scenario that Hogan defeats Jarrett and leaves with the WCW title, only to come back later. And, and challenge the interim WCW champion at that time. Well, what would cause Hogan to leave WCW? What would cause Hogan to take the title and go home? Um, they were obviously trying to play off that narrative that Hogan and Russo had some issues with each other. So I could see, I could see them you know, elaborating on their backstage issues in front of the camera more. I could see that eventually turning into Eric Bischoff kind of splitting away from Vince Russo like we originally thought we were going to see at the beginning of this New Blood Millionaires Club angle and Bischoff siding with Hogan. And that's where Hogan and Russo have their disagreement. Let's say Hogan were to defeat Jarrett in that match, but there was some sort of controversial finish um, maybe Jarrett had his foot under the rope. Maybe Russo got involved, um, you know, interfering in the match. Um, Russo being the, you know, his character at the time being very um, power hungry, having a big ego, trying to reverse the decision, even though Hogan winning the title was fair and square. Um, you know, and, and maybe... Maybe Bischoff, maybe it's revealed that Bischoff was in Hogan's back pocket all along. And he was trying to, um, he was trying to take down Vince Russo uh, politically behind the scenes. And that sets up uh, a power struggle between the two of them. And Hogan just gets up and walks off. Um, or v Russo strips him of the title, but Hogan still got possession of the belt and he just leaves with it anyways. Um, and then Hogan were to come back and let's say Russo sets up the tournament. And Russo, it's, it's down to Booker T and Jeff Jarrett. We got Booker T as your WCW um, World Heavyweight Champion. And let's say Hogan returns. Like, let's say Hogan returns. So that was July of 2000. Let's say they stretch this out till 
uh, I don't know, October? Let's say Halloween Havoc, all right? Let's just say Halloween Havoc. A year from when Hogan laid down for Sting. Uh, and Booker T's in a match with, uh, let's just say Scott Steiner. Because actually that's what they originally booked for that card that year. Scott Steiner and Booker T for the world title. Um, and Booker T, uh, or let's just say Scott Steiner defeats Booker T. Um and he's posing and he's, you know, celebrating and Russo's there by his side. And all of a sudden Hulk Hogan shows up with the WCW, with the other WCW title. And you have Hogan and Scott Steiner uh, on a collision course and Hogan challenges the real champ. Or let's say Booker T retains the title and it's Hogan and Booker T. Um, in, in hindsight, you would probably have to turn Booker T into a heel. So he would, you know, he would probably have to align forces with Russo. Um because I can't see them trying to do babyface Hulk Hogan and babyface Booker T. Um, but Booker T would be, I guess, the figurehead new star for WCW that Vince Russo was supporting against the old guard of, you know, Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. Um, that, if that's if that's the direction they really were going to go and that was like i said that was an original idea that has been publicly talked about um by all parties involved it was pitched it was something that apparently that was alleged, allegedly agreed upon before the match but there was some some shenanigans that took place and things got switched up as we all know um hogan and booker t at you know the the, the november pay-per-view in WCW, Mayhem, maybe, or maybe they wait long enough and they do Hogan Booker T at Starcade 2000 that year. Maybe they maybe they build the main event around the, that pay per view around that. The real WCW World Heavyweight Champion is it Hogan? Is it Hollywood Hulk Hogan or is it Booker T? Um, I would think that if they wanted to really build towards a a marquee matchup and a main event, they would wait till that Starcade to do that. Um, you know, Hogan coming back at Halloween Havoc, claiming that he's the real world champion. Booker T, the current WCW champion. Maybe they, maybe they have Booker T go through um, a couple of different guys like a Sting. Maybe you know he he gets the best of Sting in a rivalry at that next pay per view. Maybe a Kevin Nash if he's still around. A Diamond Dallas Page, who knows? Um, really pad Booker T's resume. I guess you could say, um, for his big showdown with Hogan at that Starcade. Um, I, I couldn't honestly tell you who I think they would have um, they would have really gone with. To, to be perfectly honest with you, I really don't know how that how that match would have played out. A Booker T Hulk Hogan match for the the vacant world title or the undisputed WCW World Heavyweight Title at Starcade. I don't know. Um, that's the knowing obviously we didn't get that because nobody could agree to anything between Hogan and Russo and Bischoff and, and Jarrett. So, um, you know, how does Jarrett play a factor? How does, you know, and, and that's another thing. How does Jarrett play a role in this? You know, is Jeff Jarrett, um, the, is the, is the on-screen association with Russo done with, uh, does Russo kind of, um, you know, kind of support Booker T on television, um, and and he kind of you know knocks Jared off to the to the he kicks him to the curb. That's something I that's something very possible too. I, I could kind of see that. Um, maybe they turn Jeff they try to turn Jeff Jarrett into a babyface. Uh, maybe that sets up like a Jeff Jarrett and a Scott Steiner. Um, you know, Steiner was 
kind of having an on-screen association with with Russo at that time. Maybe, you know, Russo kind of builds up his little army, his little stable of guys with, like, Booker T as the champion. And then you got Steiner, you got Jarrett. Almost, you know, not an extended version of that 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 new blood, but, you know, a little... A little stable of guys that you know Russo sees as like a core of the future of WCW at that time. Shane Douglas, um, Lance Storm, maybe you know you never know, um, or maybe it's just Russo you know leading Booker T, and he sees Booker T as his star, and it's Russo backing Booker, Bischoff backing Hogan, um, but you know Jeff Jarrett could play a, a a prominent role in that match. Maybe Jeff Jarrett would be named like the special guest referee or something. You know who knows. Um, Let's say here's an interesting here here's something that you know just kind of came to me. Let's say let's say Jarrett wins. Russo goes with Jarrett and they they agree, you know, let's say Hogan and Bischoff agree to it. And there's some sort of issue with, you know, the finish uh maybe Russo screws Hogan somehow, interference. Um maybe that sets up Bischoff, you know, kind of having enough of dealing with Russo and, you know, the, the battle lines are drawn. That's how he backs Hogan. But maybe Jarrett, you know, squeaks out the victory. Um, and Hogan attacks Jarrett post-match. Maybe Bischoff kind of lays some hands on Russo. And Hogan takes the title with him, even though he's not officially the champion, and walks off television. That would be interesting. Hogan didn't win the belt, but he took the title with him because he was screwed. And him and Bischoff left. And so that forces Russo to create a new championship. Maybe that's where, you know, WCW was doing a lot of different things at that time and they were changing things up. Uh, maybe that would have forced them to create a brand new WCW title belt. And that kind of takes away from that kind of, they, they rebrand themselves um, with this new championship belt, the design, the look, um, they had changed the logo. They had changed the way that they had produced the television, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe it'd be a situation where Hogan takes that belt representing the tradition of professional wrestling and just walks off with it. And Russo is forced to create a new championship. Jarrett is the new champion. Maybe Jarrett continues his run against someone like Booker T. Um, you know, Goldberg was still, uh, they had bounced Goldberg back and forth between heel and babyface. Maybe Goldberg, maybe Goldberg comes into play here and Goldberg dethrones Jarrett and he's the new champion. And then that's when they set up Hogan returning, claiming to be the real WCW champion. And it's him and Goldberg at Star Kid because they never had that rematch from that Georgia Dome show in 98. You know, maybe that's something where maybe that's something where they stick to they stick to their guns and Goldberg stays a heel and he somehow defeats Jarrett for the title, and he's the WCW champion, and he has that dominant run. He's beaten the Stings. He's beaten the DDPs. He's beaten the Kevin Nashes. He's beaten the Steiners. He's beaten Jarrett. He's beaten Booker T. He's beaten, you know, he's going through guys left and right, and that's when Hogan returns, and Hogan claims he's the real champion, and they set up Hogan and Goldberg in the ultimate rematch at Starcade. Hogan not only claiming he was screwed out of the championship at Bash of the Beach, but also wanting his rematch with Goldberg from their Georgia Dome show a few years ago. So those are just a few of the uh, the, 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 the different scenarios um, 
in realistically i think they could have went with um hogan taking the title and coming back and challenging you know whether it's a booker t um and hogan still proclaiming he's the real champion or hogan not winning the title but still taking it with him and coming back after he'd been screwed it sets up the showdown with him and goldberg i don't know um i feel like that's something that that they that realistically they could have visited that, that they could have addressed um down the line but like i said uh, wires were crossed there was some miscommunication some shenanigans took place russo um turned it into a real shoot and that was his way of excommunicating um hulk hogan from the the, the picture in wcw and uh you know i think that about does it this week here on kicking out of two thank you all so very much hope you guys had fun with that little history lesson uh regarding the 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 roller coaster existence of the major players in this bash the beach incident you know I, I took you guys around the block a few times i wanted to be able to get you guys to have an understanding of where all these guys were coming from not only behind the scenes but on camera as well in the storylines with hogan and bischoff and russo and Jarrett and booker t and uh, hopefully i didn't bore you guys to death hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed every bit of it um next week we are going to be coming back at you with another blind date diary if you will and that will be of ecw's heat wave 2000 uh, we'll be approaching the 20 year anniversary of that so you can check that out next week i'll watch that show from start to finish i've never watched it before i've heard some good reviews on it so i've never really watched that pay-per-view before so i'm going to watch that for the very first time and i'm going to give you my blind date recap and tell you if it was a good blind date if it deserves a second look or if it's a one and done and it's just another memory in the black book of my wrestling pay-per-view my, my, my wrestling fandom if you will uh so be on the lookout for that next week blind date diaries ecw heat wave 2000 and i think it's about that time that we officially put this show down for the three count we'll see you all next week